I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. C-13 Originals. Previously on Once Upon a Time in the Valley, we took our leave of the Valley and Tracy Lords, went back to Redondo Beach, and Tracy Lords, when she wasn't yet Tracy Lords, was still Nora Kuzma. We watched Nora transition from Midwestern Bumpkin to SoCal Beach Bunny. I saw her on the strand on the roller skates. Her sister was there, and then two other girls. They all had kind of similar bathing suits, you know, like the French cut bathing suit to just come out or whatever. But she was just looked way better. Like she just switched from being that little hick or whatever she was in eighth grade. She was bang, and I was like, oh, fuck. She's a California girl now, and she loves those California boys. She was definitely game, down for the crime, for whatever, you know. She was definitely sexual. Make no mistake of it. I mean, that, that part was definitely there. I mean, she had no problem with people being in the same room either. Redondo Beach is paradise for Nora. But paradise isn't perfect. There's her mother's boyfriend and her alleged molester, the man she calls Roger Hayes in her memoir. And then there's the fact that she's in paradise, yet still somehow on the outside. The South Redondo rich girls couldn't upscale Nora's demeanor and beauty, but she couldn't compete with them because of money and status. is Once Upon a Time in the Valley, featuring Ashley West. We're going to start this episode by explaining the title, Marion Davies' Love Button. It's a reference to the film Citizen Kane, about Charles Foster Kane, a newspaper tycoon based on William Randolph Hearst. In the opening scene, Kane collapses, Rosebud, the word on his dying lips. Thompson, a reporter, believes it's the clue that will solve the mystery of the great man's personality. And he spends the rest of the movie trying to find out what it means. He doesn't, but in the final frame, the audience does. Rosebud is Kane's sled, a symbol of lost childhood innocence. According to Hollywood lore, Rosebud is also a dirty inside joke, a pornographic inside joke. It was Hearst's pet name for the clitoris of his mistress, Marion Davies. And Herman Mankiewicz, Kane's screenwriter, knew this because he was a frequent guest of the couple at Hearst Castle in San Simeon. 
Where are we going with all this, you might reasonably ask. Well, you remember Dean Weatherly, don't you? In Noah's memoir underneath it all, Dean is Noah's callow high school boyfriend, the one who heartlessly dumps her when she becomes pregnant with his child, then leaves her high and dry as far as paying for the abortion is concerned. Dean Weatherly, real name Troy Matherly, is, we believe, the rosebud of this story. He breaks it open, breaks Nora and Tracy open. Troy is two years ahead of Nora at Redondo Union High, and it's there that he first spots her. Here's Troy. In the hallway one day, I saw this most beautiful woman in the world I'd ever seen before. She was just drop your jaw. And she had a smile, this infectious smile that just in the beautiful green eyes and just her smile, just the way that she, her approach on life, she was just so happy. Always bubbly, always fun, always full of laughter, like nothing ever got her down. She was always upbeat. She was kind of reserved if she didn't know you at first. And she would like, we went out in public, like a packed place, like she'd always like stay real close to me and, and hold my hand. This sounds real. This sounds like love. Yeah, I think it is. She was this is very special. She didn't like her clothing, like she didn't wear revealing clothing. She didn't like guys like hooting and hollering at her all the time. The beauty is really is, is within, you know, always has been. Like her soul, her spirit is just amazing. Like just being around her, you could just feel it. And luckily for me, I realized that I had like just one in a bazillion. It's kind of weird that I knew that at that time. This woman is like way different than any woman I will ever ever meet in my life. Like I knew that already with her. And Nora and Troy are a real couple. Like they aren't sneaking around what she was doing with Mike Braschino. And it isn't some casual arrangement like it was with Rick Shaw. They're together, boyfriend and girlfriend. Here's Troy on how it was between them. We didn't have jealousy between us. Like we were just who we were and we were just going through life and just having the most fun we fucking could because we both come from a bad, broken household that weren't, you know, mom and dad there like all the time, you know, it's just like we found each other and, and we just clicked and that's just really hard to find. And, and a lot of that is because we were a lot alike. Um, we're very hard workers and, and we didn't want to end up, you know, like our parents or whatever, you know, I'm sure she didn't end up like her mother. I'm sure she wanted her own career and, and be somebody and do something, you know, like watch out world. Here's Troy on how they'd spend their weekends. We'd ride from her house in Redondo all the way down to the beach, which was about almost three miles. And then we would skate all day long. She would be roller skating. I, I skateboarded um, alongside her. And then by the end of the day, she would get tired. I put her on my handlebars. And then we got like the, the pool noodles, that foam, and we put it on handlebars. So she could just sit up there like on a perch, you know, just lean back into my shoulders. Everywhere we went, hooting, hollering, whistling, all day long, just constantly. I mean, she would literally cause car accidents. I've seen cars like forgetting to look ahead of them and just slamming the person in back of them on Pacific Coast Highway more than one time. Just staring at her, she was so beautiful and just gorgeous. Here's Troy on how they'd spend their weekdays. I would go to her house, pick her up, and take her to school. After school, we'd go to the beach together. And at nighttime, we'd go to lay on the sand and look at the stars and go swimming in the ocean late at night. Sometimes she would sleep at my house. 
it was just me and her, inseparable. Their inseparability is something friends tease them about. Our nicknames were Scooby and Shaggy because we were always, always together. If you saw one of us, the other one wasn't far behind. Rick Shaw certainly notices the Scooby-Shaggy act. I used to see them walking around the school holding hands the whole time. and I'm not a big hand holder. That's not my angle at all. They never had a moment alone. Whenever there was in-between classes or lunch or whatever, them two were together. And I always got looks of lemons from them. I'd walk by and I'd go, hey, what's up? And they'd just look at me like stink eye, you know. <laughs> Noah and Troy seem old-fashioned. Also unjaded. Here's Troy. Some of the fondest memories I have of her would be Saturday morning. I would get up early as I could and bicycle over there in the rain, wind, it didn't matter. And we would sit there and watch cartoons with her and her sisters. They all had those pajamas with their little feet in them. You know, you zip up the one pieces. Even Nora. Up until like all this happened, that's what we do on Saturday mornings. Their sex seems likewise, unjaded. We didn't have sex for like six months at least. She was not like, fuck me, fuck me, girl, no. She was like the girl next door, like, she wasn't like that, right? And then we did have sex. It was, you know, just teenage sex, you know, it wasn't porno sex. Do you remember in the last episode, Rick Shaw talking about Noah's chameleon quality? Maybe that's what's going on here. Troy's more of a traditional guy, so Noah's making herself into more of a traditional girl. Or maybe she was a traditional girl all along and Troy let her show that side of herself. Either way, this is clearly an innocent and carefree time for her, and she doesn't have many of those. We know that what comes after isn't innocent, and neither is what came before. Yeah, I wondered about that. Did Noah ever bring up Steubenville with Troy? I asked him, actually. I guess Steubenville for her was not a good memory because she never talked about it. I mean, never, ever talked about it, ever. She didn't tell him about her father, about Ricky and the rape, none of that. And I'm assuming Troy is from the same neighborhood, is also North Redondo? Yeah, but that's not where he's from from. He's a transplant, like Nora, had been living in rural Northern California with his mom. And then halfway through his freshman year, he moved in with his dad in Redondo. And maybe that's why he's a little different, because he isn't a hometown boy. Here's Mark Baxter, the ultimate hometown boy. Troy was a total stud, but he was quiet. Like our backyard fighting guys, you don't have to be muscular and stuff. You just have to get into a lot of fights. If you don't get in a lot of fights, that means you don't know how to fight. There's a lot of people that could kick my ass, but they just don't want to get involved with all that stuff because we're going to fight again, and then we're going to fight again, and I'm going to show up to the house, and then we're going to go to the backyard. And A lot of us are like that, you know, backyard, surfer, skater, backyard fighting type style people, right? Troy wasn't that guy. Troy wasn't the backyard guy. Troy wasn't the skater. Troy wasn't the surfer. But so because people get qu- are quiet and good looking and buff, they're like a, a sitting duck at a gator's pond, man, at the keg parties. You know what I mean? With a bunch of hoodlums going in there. And then you go into the party with your friends and there's kind of Troy and his little buddies just having a little beer or whatever. We're flipping tables and cracking people in the back. You know what I mean? Mark and his North Redondo crew sound rowdy. Yeah, and maybe I was a little slow to cotton on to how rowdy. I spent the day with Mark when he gave me that South Bay tour, and he was showing me Perry Park, a place where Redondo kids used to gather, and he mentioned something about mobbing dudes there. Mobbing dudes? That was the phrase, mobbing dudes. And okay, as we discussed last episode, South Bay has a code like the porn industry has a code. 
a jargon, a language. Outsiders aren't supposed to understand, and I'm an outsider, obviously, so at first I don't. But then I start to. Mark keeps talking, and it dawns on me that mobbing a dude means initiating a guy into a gang. Drunks on skates, that's the name of the gang. Doesn't sound very scary. Yeah, I know, but it is. Drunks on skates comes out of what's called Peckerwood subculture, Peckerwood being a slang term for poor white. And Peckerwood subculture comes out of the California penal system subculture. Folsom, San Quentin, all that. And is an offshoot of the Aryan Brotherhood and white power movements. Here's Mark again. You gotta remember, like, all the black gang, three lights away from us. Crenshaw's only three lights away. And when they came down and shot and killed our friends and stuff like that, and we went out there and we chased dudes down in the projects and stuff like that and smash them, those were our enemies. Crips and Bloods were our enemies, except when we were dealing in guns and drugs in those areas. They are like, we hate you guys. But bring the guns in. Yikes. So more than rowdy. Yeah. And a number of these guys did hard time. I figured that out during this exchange with Mike Braschino. We were talking about the halcyon days of Redondo Union High. I mean, I, the only problem was the drugs and everything, you know what I mean? It was like, what was an occasional party and a weekend party and became my life at one point. I ended up going to prison and all kinds of stuff. But, Why did you go to prison? Uh, the first time? Or, you know. The dot, dot, dot following his the first time or conveys, I think, the free-swinging fatalism of the North Redondo boys better and more succinctly than any words I could come up with. And anyway, the point is, they're a hard-nosed bunch, macho almost to the point of having a death wish. So it's not difficult to understand why Nora would gravitate to Troy, a country boy. Sweet, gentle. A bit like the way she gravitated to Tom Byron when she first got into the adult industry. Yeah, that's a good comparison. Both guys would, I imagine, offer a bit of relief. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From m and rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Sophia Franklin, and I have a little secret to let you in on. I know you've all wanted more of me, so I'm introducing you to my brand new mini-series that's out now. More of me, more of you, more of us every Monday. Bringing back all the OG feels that initially brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Troy and I spoke over the phone before we met in person, and after that call, he sent me a photo of Nora, which I'm now going to describe. It's late afternoon, judging from the slant of the sun. Nora's wearing a halter top, and you can see the strap of her backpack on her right shoulder, and her hair is in a Farrah Fawcett flip. She's smiling so big that her eyes are shut, and the way her head's tilted makes it seem as if the person behind the camera has just made her laugh. Yeah, I know the photo well. You sent it to me after Troy sent it to you. So in the days following, I found myself constantly looking at it. 
sneaking looks at it when I was supposed to be doing other things. You have this radiantly pretty, all-American girl face, and it's completely open, without a single secret to conceal. Yet, of course, you know that this isn't true, that it's concealing many secrets, dark ones. And you also know where it's going to wind up, under a thick coat of makeup on the box cover of a porno, which adds to the poignancy, I think. Oh, yeah. The photo's poignant and plaintive and evocative and haunting. And the moment I received it, well, that's the moment that I started to get this intense feeling of identification with Nora, with Tracy. She became real to me in a way she wasn't before. And this sense of identification grew when Troy and I had lunch. He's a union guy, a longshoreman, works nights, which is why he can meet up during the day. We go to Kincaid's, a restaurant on Fisherman's Wharf in Redondo Beach. He has an athletic build and a handsome face and an air of assured, old-school, rough-hewn masculinity. Like a cowboy. Or like a character Marlon Brando might have played in the 50s. Has that kind of sensitive muscularity. Terry Malloyan on the waterfront, maybe. Basically, he's the strong, silent type. But you talk to him about Nora for five minutes, and you know that his experience with her crushed him. And maybe crushes him still. And when he speaks of her, it's with a wounded directness that's affecting. He's probably one of the few people who really knew her. I think so. Because she's so hidden, so guarded. And it's from him that I begin to get a feel for her everyday life. For her hopes and dreams, tensions and frustrations. Here's Troy and Nora's mom, Patricia. She was always busy, always looking out for her kids, but always busy, always had to go somewhere, always had to go run, do something, always being like that two-parent person. Her mom was really not around as much as I think that she could have been or should have been during those times. I think there was some resentment there. And on her younger sisters, Rachel and Grace. We would hang out at her house a lot of the time because her mom was gone working a lot, so she would take care of her sisters. They were like at elementary school, so she was there a lot, like making them dinner and looking after them. They loved Nora, like do anything that she said. They loved her to death. And on Nora wanting to be any place but home. She never had privacy there. So what we would do, we would go in the shower and turn the shower on for like 20 minutes and just go in there and just sit there. We called it sitting in the rain. And we would just sit there for 20 minutes just to be alone and to have privacy. She craved having like her own place and her own privacy. Hiding out in the bathroom and turning on the shower to get a moment's peace. That story really puts you in her skin. You listen to it, and you're sitting in the rain, too. You can physically feel how constrained her circumstances are, how trapped she must feel, by the lack of space, by the lack of cash, by the lack of opportunity, by the obligation to look after her little sisters, by the love for her mother who tries so hard but is just sort of helpless, hapless, hopeless. So she seeks escape to the future. We talked about couldn't wait till we graduated. We couldn't wait till we got our driver's license. We talked about what a cute baby we would have if we had a baby. And we just thought we would be together forever. You know, and get through high school and go to college, whatever. We couldn't wait, couldn't wait, couldn't wait to grow up. Couldn't wait to grow up. Or to Mexico. But with Nora, like, she would like, oh, let's go somewhere. Like, let's go somewhere. Like, sometimes she just wanted to go somewhere far, far away. So me and her sister, Lorraine, and her sister's boyfriend, we went down to Mexico for the weekend. We went down to um, Ensenada. We got horses and rode them on the beach. Nora has her dreamy, poetic side. 
the side that craves a lost weekend below the border now and again. But there's also the hard-headed, practical-minded steelworker's daughter side. And that side is trying to figure out what the smart play is on the lousy hand she's been dealt. Did you ask Troy about what Mike Brasino said? Nora announcing to her eighth grade class that she wanted to be a Playboy centerfold. Of course. I always wondered if that was a bid for attention or, like, a serious aspiration. Here's Troy's answer. She would ask me, like, do you think I'd be good enough for Playboy? Which was kind of odd for a 15-year-old to ask if she, you know, was she good enough for Playboy? But um, but she she would generally ask me, like, like once a month, like, like, do you think I could really do Playboy? And I go, without even hesitating, yeah, you could do it, like, out of waking up out of bed with no makeup on, you could do it. And she goes, well, would you mind if I, if I did Playboy? Thinking she was going to do it when she was 18, and I said, I would be fucking thrilled if you did Playboy. It wasn't, however, her only aspiration. Playboy was the bottom of her goals. Like, she could have been you know, a writer, a movie star. Like, she was just didn't stop there. It was That was just one little piece of it. For some reason, she felt she was going to be famous or she knew she was going to be famous. She's just that kind of person where, like, their soul, their aura, you could just see that this person is not your normal person and that she's going to do something with her life, like, really amazing. To reach even that bottom goal, though, is a tall task. If Nora wants to pose for Playboy, she needs a modeling portfolio. And modeling portfolios cost money. She's not a South Redondo girl, so she can't just get it from her parents. She has to work for it. Then she finds out she can't even do that. There was a hamburger place really close to her house. And she got a job there. And the owners would sexually harass her. Like get too close to her and brush up against her and stuff like that. It made her really uncomfortable. And she was just crying, frustrated that, you know, because she liked working there. She had another job, too, and the same thing happened, where the employees or the customers were just, it was too much for her. So Nora turns to her mother's ex. This ex is a man of many names. He's Roger Hayes to Nora in her memoir. He's something Rogers to adult agent Jim South. And he's comb over Bob to adult actor Tom Byron. Only the man of many names really just has one. Rogers. Well done, Jim South. In his 80s and with the best memory of the lot. Here's Troy on Rogers. He lived in Redondo Beach, but he lived on the other side with uh, TRW and all the uh, information technology and, and satellite companies were. And we would go over to his house and hang out with him. I don't know why, but they still talked, him and Nora. He was a family, she called him a family friend. Why does Nora conceal from Troy, to whom she actually does reveal herself, rare for her as we've discussed, that Rogers is her molester? Maybe she's ashamed about what happened with Rogers and doesn't want Troy to know. Or maybe she feels some complicated and fraught form of affection for Rogers and doesn't want Troy to hate him. Or maybe she believes Rogers can be useful to her and doesn't want Troy to bar her from seeing him. Troy again. He was a nice guy. And actually, I moved in with him like after this all happened, like after high school. And he was pretty smart, but he seemed a little off to me. He seemed kind of creepy on the outside, kind of sleazy and perverted because he had like greasy hair, long greasy hair, and he didn't shower all the time. And he was like a hippie from the 70s. But I mean, I think he had her best intentions. He just wanted to help her, but I don't think it came out that way. 
You can hear Troy's ambivalence about Rogers in his description. It's that mixture in Rogers that we talked about in the last episode, the niceness and the creepiness side by side. And Troy seems as thrown by it as Nora was. Troy says Rogers wants to help Nora. Help her with what exactly? And help her how? When Troy told that story about the lost weekend in Ensenada with Nora and her sister Lorraine, he mentioned Lorraine's boyfriend. The boyfriend, who would later become Lorraine's husband, is named Jean. I spoke to Jean on Facebook Messenger. Jean told me this. Nora try really hard to get work and they will not hire her. I recall Lucky Stores will not hire her because she was too pretty, according to the manager. At that time, she got a fake ID that helped her with. She figured a fake ID will help her get jobs. So in underneath it all, she was telling the truth about Rogers arranging for her to get that fake ID, introducing her to the real Christy Nussman. The adult industry was so sure she'd swiped it. You heard, Suze. Yeah, I wasn't able to talk to the real Christy Nussman, but I was able to talk to the real Christy Nussman's mother, Gloria. It was a fast conversation. Gloria was very suspicious of me. Before hanging up, however, she did confirm that Christy gave Nora the birth certificate, that Nora didn't steal it. Nora needs more than a fake ID, though, to get into the adult industry. She also needs a ride, which is almost as hard to come by. Rogers will provide that as well. Here's Troy again. She wanted to get serious about modeling. So she made this dress in home economics class and she got these clothes together and then he said he could help her with that. So he took her to Hollywood. He knew somebody to get her uh, pictures done, a portfolio, whatever. And we didn't have a car. No one had a car. It isn't just that Rogers has a car. It's also where he's willing to take her in that car. The guy who's allegedly been masturbating over her since she was 11 probably doesn't think there's anything wrong with aiding and abetting her plan to become a nude model at 15. And as we've already determined, it's likely that she knew Jim South's figure modeling agency was in fact a nude modeling agency. To be clear, to be clearer than clear, we're not blaming Nora for what happened. Definitely not. We're just trying to understand how it happened. My guess as to how it happened? Her ambition is keen and is impelled and concentrated by her very understandable rage. Rage at the limitations imposed on her by her age, her class, her gender. And of course, rage at the abuse she suffered at the hands of men like Rogers. My guess is that she's feeling frightened, but that she acts brazen, and that the act is convincing, as is her ID. False, but real in the sense that it's issued by the government. My guess is that she thinks she's in control. After all, she's turned her abuser into her chauffeur and lackey, hasn't she? When she's really out of control. And next thing you know, it's bobby socks and spiked heels and velvet magazine. Exactly. But back to Troy. The alarm bells don't sound for him initially. So she started going on these photo shoots, right? With And at first they were innocent and she would show me the check and she would show me the picture. She's wearing like a tank top and like next to a barn or something, right? And I'm like, oh, okay, like this is legitimate. This is cool. Okay. Pretty soon, though, it's five alarm fire bells going off for him. So then she would skip school and go with him. First started out like once a week, and then it was two, three times a week. And Nora and Troy, a.k.a. Scooby and Shaggy, go from never apart to never together. You know, there's all these rumors going around. I didn't know what to believe. I haven't seen her for a while. Troy's in the dark, but he's about to get enlightened. Remember Darren Lewis, Ashley? 
Nora's classmate, the one who put chalk on his hands and then slapped girls on the ass. Only he didn't do it to Nora because he thought she was too wholesome. How could I forget? Well, Darren has a story to tell, and Mike Braschino is going to help him tell it. Darren first. I do remember, most of all, the day that I saw the picture on my friend's wall. It was either 83 or 84. We were in a, another 15-year-old's bedroom, and her boyfriend was in that same room with four other of us. We were smoking pot where we clearly shouldn't have been. Back then, none of my friend's parents were home. They basically did whatever they wanted, and if the parents saw them doing it, the parents didn't give a shit anyways. I could never have Dirty Magazine up on my wall out of disrespect for my mother because I grew up in a house with a mom and a dad. But a lot of my friends didn't have that parental guidance like I had, and his whole room is covered in Dirty Magazines. And they're all fully nude pictures. Now, Mike Braschino. My room was covered with high times, and my uncle had a subscription to these stupid heavy metal and whatever, the pop magazine and the surfer magazine and the Playboy magazine. There was just stacks of them in the garage or whatever. So I just started tearing all the centerfolds up and just covered the whole room. It's like, this better wallpaper than this shit. Back to Darren. Yeah, I'm looking at all these dirty pictures on the wall that are probably a foot wide. It was clear to me right there. I said, that's your girlfriend right there. Everybody in the room said, no, it's not. And I said, yes, it is. Nora Kuzma, that's your girlfriend. And in that room on that day, five 15-year-olds figured out that my friend's girlfriend was freaking in dirty magazines. My friend was totally devastated, though. It ruined him. I asked Darren if he and his friends told other people at school. Oh yeah, that was like the most exciting thing that could ever happen to us. I mean, did everybody know? After we got done with them, they did. Darren doesn't, however, say a word to Nora. I never confronted her, but I know that she just kind of moved out of school, just kind of went out on her own after our sophomore year. We did some god-awful things in high school. There were a couple other girls that had to quit high school that we found out had venereal diseases because we also had friends that worked in the Redondo Beach Free Clinic. We didn't live by the same standards as the kids today that aren't allowed to say what things really are. You know, they sugarcoat everything. And if you call a terrorist a marshmallow, nobody's going to be afraid of a marshmallow, you know? We called things the way they were. That's just brutal. I know. For Nora, for those poor girls with STDs, and for Troy, who is indeed devastated. Yeah, everybody was whispering, commenting, and giggling behind my back, and, you know, it just got really weird. I didn't know what was going on at that point. My whole world was just blown out, you know. And then she told me she was pregnant, so I was working. So I had a little hesitation about if it was mine or not, but I gave her the money for that. And her book, she says I didn't give her money, which is bullshit. Actually, she doesn't say he didn't give her the money. She says he didn't give her the money until after the procedure, and only when she threatened to tell his parents. But his point is taken. Not only did he give her the money, he gave her the money even though he wasn't sure the baby was his. He's also disputing her timeline, and that's important. 
In her memoir, it's all so neat and clear-cut. Here's the sequence according to Underneath It All. She gets pregnant by her one true love. Her one true love abandons her, leaving her not just emotionally bereft, but financially bereft as well, since she has no way of paying for the abortion. She is thus doubly vulnerable to the predations of the porn industry. In real life, at least as Troy remembers it, everything's all jumbled up and murky. Here's the sequence according to Troy. She gets into nude modeling, becomes alienated from him, probably because she's never around and because she's keeping secrets and feeling guilty about those secrets. Then comes the pregnancy. I hadn't seen her for probably three weeks. She was MIA from school and rumors were going around and, you know, she's fucking three guys and some making pornos and this crazy stuff was coming out of everybody on high school. How, you know, one story turns into another story, but something was definitely up. And then she wanted money for an abortion. So we're supposed to meet at this corner store at lunchtime, a little bit early. And like half the football team is, is sitting there on the corner right there. And they see me and they start saying, Hey, I heard your girlfriend's doing porn. I heard your girlfriend's a slut. Ha, ha, ha. I go there. It was like $182. And then she pulls up in a car, forgot who she was with. And um, I walk up to the car, gave her the $182. And I said, um, you know, can I go with you? Do you want me to go with you? And she goes, no, I got a ride. I got a ride. And then um, as I'm talking to her, the football team is still like, oh, fucking slut. Oh, I, whatever. And I can imagine her rolling up there and, and seeing me and, and seeing the football team laughing and then thinking that I'm like laughing with them. Like, who's going to be laughing? Like, any normal person would not be laughing at that. And the way she tells it, once she gets her revenge on Troy by forcing him to cough up, she's through with him. He disappears from the story, never to be heard from again. Yeah, in real life, Troy does not disappear. We'll get to that. But first, Nora. So, as Darren said, Nora drops out of Redondo Union High. She's still the talk of it, though, when her issue of Penthouse, the September 1984 issue, hits stands at the tail end of summer. Here's her old rival, Tania Dooley. Me and my girlfriends are roller skating, and we went into, you know, they call them liquor stores in California. We went in there to get candy or whatever, and they had the Penthouse. I think it was Penthouse. My boyfriend would cheat on me with this girl and then all of a sudden now I'm looking at her in a magazine naked and it just didn't (laughs) didn't set well. Even that cheating boyfriend, Mike Prashino, sees it. K-Rock at the time, they had some summer thing where they go to Hawaii, right? My friend was the Rasta man. He's dead now, but he sold the weed to these guys at that place at K-Rock. And he did the circuit report in the morning. He's like, how are we going? You want to go or whatever? And I was like, sure. He's be like pretty much paid away and everything. And we were both, like, looking at one of those ABC stores. It was weird because I remember we were just walking by all the magazines and everything. It wasn't her on the front. She was in the centerfold. And I'm all, no way, dude. Is that her? We didn't, I didn't even know who Tracy Lords was, you know what I mean? And then he looked at me, and I was like, whoa, dude. Like, that's a, that was almost, like, unreal. I was like, are we tripping or what? We were just like, well, we know where she took off to. And yet amazingly, shockingly, almost unbelievably... Nora hasn't taken off at all. She's no longer living with her mom and sisters in Redondo, but she's still in South Bay. She's got a place in Lawndale, just one town over, with her new boyfriend, Tommy, the AWOL Marine with a violent streak and no job. Here's Troy. When this penthouse came out, 
at first my heart like just dropped but part of me goes fuck yeah you did it like <laughs> you fucking did it <laughs> you know mostly though he's not like fuck yeah mostly he's distraught since I was 15 I worked at this bike shop I'm also cyclery which is right behind the poop deck on the strand there a quick parenthetical the poop deck is a local bar Mark Baxter pointed it out to me on our tour and it's a stone's throw from Hermosa Cyclery. And then once Nora Magarine, the penthouse came out especially, they would go party, celebrate in the poop deck. It would be Tommy, and it would be her, and they would be having parties in there. They'd be hooting and hollering, and she'd come in there and sign, sign the books for everybody and stuff, and dance around, and everything. Like, yeah. Nora and Tommy are not just heard in South Bay. They're seen, too. Mike Braschino, now back from Hawaii, has a sighting. She had a white Corvette. This was before we all had, anybody had cars. It was the white old, like, I went the rounded front end, the rounded tires sticking up and everything. I don't know what year that is exactly, but I mean, it was new. It was newer than anybody else's shit maybe had. She stuck out when you saw, like, you saw that car around. It wasn't like, not everybody had those. There was an older dude later on that I saw, you know, he had a goatee and shit already. He was driving with her in the car in the white Corvette. The Nora and Tommy sightings aren't all at a distance either. Nora decides, for whatever reason, to compete in the Jose Cuervo bikini contest in Hermosa Beach. Mark Baxter remembers. It was Chick Magazine, Cherry Magazine, Penthouse. She had just got her name. Like, her name just changed. And there was like 20 of us down there. The waves were big that year. And, uh, you know, we were all, oh, my gosh, he gets out of a Corvette with this dude that's, like, wearing Speedos. He's a freaking muscle head, you know. And we're all clowning the dude, you know what I mean? And we're like, what the hell, Nora? What are you doing? Where you been, man? It's an ugly scene, and it gets uglier. Mike Braschino is also there that day. She came out. Like, somebody said, had a remark and said, I got her, a picture of her on my wall or some shit like that. And they booed her off the stage, like, and it was like almost turned into like a you know a situation where like people were like yelling and shit. This was like later on, and I, I was trying to find her, like going, "What the fuck, man? That's but you're not, you know, I'm gonna talk or whatever ever again." She said, "You guys are just a bunch of like losers or lames or whatever." I mean, I, I never said anything bad about her or anything really. It's remarkable, really, that Nora, who is now Tracy, would show up at an event like this in South Bay. You'd think that she'd want to avoid the old gang. I mean, she was ashamed enough of the nude modeling that she left school when Darren and his friends outed her. But perhaps Penthouse changes things. Penthouse is in another league from Chic Magazine and Cherie Magazine. It's nudity, but it's also a big deal. Everybody knows Penthouse, and it's the Vanessa Williams issue, the issue the entire world is talking about. So it could be she isn't ashamed anymore. And she has that Corvette. For a dropout and runaway, she's doing very well. She probably wants to show off a little. But I think something deeper is going on here as well. Something more pathological. The way she yelled at Mike Braschino. She was in pain. She must have been hurt, like deeply hurt by the way her friends reacted, felt betrayed by them. And Mark and Mike obviously sensed that hurt because Mark seems protective and Mike concerned. Yeah, tender in their gruff, tough guy ways.
So somehow, news of what Nora's doing hasn't yet reached her family, which is just possible, because according to Jean, Lorraine is now living with him in Torrance, and Rachel and Grace are still kids, and Patricia works all the time. Jean said this to me over Facebook Messenger. All along, we thought she was doing J.C. Penny catalogs. Troy isn't Nora's boyfriend anymore, but he still cares. I told Lorraine, and Lorraine told her mom that she was doing these magazines. The mom had no clue, and Lorraine had no clue. And then a couple of days later, I'm walking home from the beach up this hill by my dad's house, and this van pulls up next to me, and Tommy gets out. He was tall, surfer-looking guy, muscular, sandy blonde hair, real boisterous, sketchy, sketchy, sketchy dude. He's jumping around, he's all pissed off. And then Nora gets up. And he said, I'm gonna kick your ass. If you told her um, mom or whatever, he told Lorraine. And then Nora comes out and yeah, that's fucked up, he told Lorraine. Kick his ass, I'm gonna kick his ass. But he starts bouncing around like he's gonna, you know, we're getting ready to throw some blows, bouncing around, bouncing around, jump up and down. And then she steps in between us and says, oh no, let's just get out of here, let's just go. It's not worth it, let's just go. So they got in the van and they left. If Troy can't leave Nora alone, though, Nora can't seem to leave Troy alone either. A short time later, she shows up at his father's house unannounced. Well, I haven't spoken to her for a couple weeks, and my stepmom goes, there's a limo outside, and I think it's Nora. So she comes up, and she's all dressed up. I guess she's coming from a shoot, a photo shoot. And um, she has roses, some flowers for me, and then she has to take us out to dinner. Then we go in the limo. And then... uh, she breaks out her Tracy Lord's ID and orders a margarita. And then she had a contract for my dad to sign. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but it sounded to me like it was something that she didn't want to do by herself. Like, did you have anybody that you could do it with you? And she said, yeah, you know, need me. What was the contract for? You heard Troy. He doesn't know. But he and I actually spent a lot of time speculating on it. We think that Nora was about to make the move into hardcore modeling and was afraid to make it alone. She wanted Troy to come with her. If she doesn't want to have hardcore sex in front of a camera, though, she doesn't have to. But maybe she thinks she does. Here's Troy on what might have caused her to arrive at such a conclusion. She did the Cherry magazine or whatever, and then, you know, she's thinking no one would find out about it because of social media back then. But someone found out about it at school, and they just ridiculed her ridiculed her hard. That would be her worst nightmare, like to have her peers like making fun of her, and that's what she got. She's a skank, she's a slut, she's a whore. And she took it hard. One of the most things that upset her was how everyone in high school turned their back to her and called her names and all that. She was really, that really hurt her, like, a lot. I asked Troy if he did the same. I guess in some ways, I kind of turned my back to her. I mean, I didn't call her those names and stuff, but I obviously was a little taken aback. And I was kind of in and out. I mean, I was sometimes there for her, sometimes I just turned my back to her because I was 17. I didn't know what was going on in that world. And my dad was just like, dude, this is not good. And then once the people at school knew, I think she said, you know, I might as well see where this goes because it's going somewhere. I'm obviously good at it. And they want me to come back and give me more money to do it. That sounds plausible to me, Ashley. Jim South told us that when she started, she only wanted to do magazines. 
It was Rogers who said to Jim, once Nora was out of the room, that she'd end up doing porn. Porn obviously wasn't in her game plan, but the plan changed when everyone she knew found out, all her classmates. Worse, they treated her like scum. And her friends were her family, you know? So like Troy said, she must have felt as if she'd crossed the point of no return with the nude modeling, and that she might as well go all the way. And the transition from nude modeling to hardcore modeling is a significant one. Basically, there's nothing separating her from movies now. Right, so the whining and dining of Troy and his father and stepmother was likely her attempt to stave off the fall into the abyss of radically impersonal sex. I asked Troy what his dad's response was when she produced the contract to sign. He said, oh, hell no. Nora, say hi to the abyss. Next time on Once Upon a Time in the Valley. She was extremely confident. She was extremely wanting to make a good impression. She was extremely willing to be perceived as doing a good job. I kind of got the feeling like even though she was an ingenue, she wanted to be in the business, she wanted to be a star, and she wanted people to pay attention to her. After the scenes were over, that's when we heard that she was looking at the script and she saw the masturbation scene, and she expressed to the makeup artist she didn't quite know what she was supposed to do. So the makeup artist took her in the back room and taught her how to do it, and she came out with my camera and nobody figured it out until afterwards. Her performances, she looked like a pro all the way around. This has been a presentation of C13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran and me, Lily Analik. Directed by Zach Levitt. Created and written by me. Produced by Ashley West. Edited and mastered by Chris Basil, Bill Schultz, Perry Crowell, and Ian Mont. Theme music and original score by Joel Goodman. Production engineering and coordination by Sean Cherry and Terrence Malangone. Field recording by Rich Berner. Artwork, marketing, and PR by Kurt Courtney, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schuff. Once Upon a Time in the Valley is hosted by me and Ashley West. Thanks for listening. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. <laughs> and now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last.